0: The Secrets of Middle-Earth is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit
1: sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Middle-Earth. Hi, everyone. You're listening to The Secrets of Middle-Earth, where we discuss the hidden themes and deeper layers found in the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, whether in his writings or in any of the media derived from them. Today, we're discussing The Rings of Power, Episode 4, The Great Wave. I'm Thomas Sanjuro, and joining me today are Thomas Salerno. Hi, Thomas. Hey, there. Caitlin Fischista, hey.
2: Hey, how's it going?
1: Doing well, and Jeff Hecker. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Thomas. All right. So be sure to follow the secrets of Middle Earth and Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or whatever podcast app or directory you subscribe to and find us on social media at facebook.com dot slash StarQuest Media or on Twitter where you can at SQPN or Instagram at StarQuest Network. Uh, we do get feedback. Uh, we've actually gotten a lot of feedback about this show uh, on a regular basis. So that's really cool. We love that you guys are listening and. Uh, getting back in touch with us. We got some feedback from Facebook. Uh, Samuel Peter K. on Facebook says, I thought the latest episode was really good talking about the show. Not not us, but the actual show. <laughs> <laughs> he thought the, the, the latest episode was really good. And I'm really excited for how the series will progress. But I'm not that much of a Tolkien lore master. And he asks the question, how do you think they're handling the impending fall of Numenor so far? Also, I thought the conversation between Elrond and Durin about their fathers was spot on Tolkien. So we'll talk about that from this episode as we get into it. But what do you guys think? How do you feel about the way they're handling the fall of Numenor so far?
0: I'm definitely satisfied with it. Like so far, I can see how they're setting things up. um, That's going to be different from the telling in the Silmarillion but still familiar enough that, you know, I can kind of see the plot beats and I'm actually interested to see um, how they kind of tell the same story, but in a different way. That's been really intriguing to me.
2: Uh, I I feel like I, I feel pretty much the same way. I'm excited to see how they are going to present their version of the fall of Numenor. And um, we know it's not going to be exactly like in the Silmarillion. Um, so it is a little bit exciting since we don't know what's going to happen exactly. Um, I thought this episode was really interesting. The way that they kind of came out with um, Muriel's dream and all of this foreshadowing. I was kind of wondering if they were going to keep um, maybe people who aren't as familiar with the lore guessing for longer. Or maybe um I was just surprised that they revealed it so soon um, as Mm -hmm. foreshadowing. But it was still I think it was really
1: cool. I have some theories about that, though, too. I think as we get into the to the episode, we'll talk a little more about, you know, what the dream means and how it's unfolding. Nice. Jeff, you feel like they're handling it pretty well?
3: Yeah. And it's it's interesting because I noticed in this one, like Farazan didn't seem to be as bad as we know he's probably going to be seemed like he was behind the queen regent whatever she was doing so it'll kind of be interesting to see how he falls further Um, and the whole political aspect of this this one was interesting and you know kind of rabble rousing against the elves so you see that he's got that you know darkness or that anti elvish whatever in already going but he still was wasn't going directly against the Against the Queen Regent, which uh, we know he he probably will later. So I think it's it's they're giving him a place to kind of start, and I think we'll see it's uh, both good characters and bad characters to kind of see how they progress. So I think it's interesting. But it, I was when the the opening scene when you see the big wave, I was I think my jaw was on the floor for a couple minutes because it just looked <laughs> so so good and so intense, and I was like, oh my gosh, are they really? Doing something now, but just for a just second, I figured, okay, right we're, now. yeah, we're, <laughs> it's episode, you know, five, let's go ahead and just finish that off and move on. But no, <laughs> it was, but it was good. I, I'm, I'm very interested to see kind of how they, you know, progress moving forward, um, especially with our characters that we know, like Isildur and, and Elendil and the others. So,
1: yeah, but well, that's a, that's another one the what's happening with them is a really interesting Topic to start discussing, too. So we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, We had another comment uh, from previous to watching this episode. It seems like uh, James Swanson on YouTube uh, was talking a lot about the stuff that we were talking about last week. But one of the really good points that I wanted to bring out uh, from their comment was have the Harfoots ever left anyone behind this question? that he asks uh, maybe this is just how they speak about those who have been lost. Maybe this is just a mindset that keeps everyone in line, but it's never really enforced. For example, when Nori is threatened with being de caravan, Sadak intervenes and says she's young and can continue, but in last place. So it's like a, a, you know, a light threat that keeps everybody in line, but not really, uh, intended to actually leave them behind. Uh, He thinks that they'll, will see uh, the possibility that if they do end up falling behind, the others will come to their aid, the no one walks alone part. And then also thinks that the star charts may be to help them in the migration so they don't get lost and ask the question, you know, maybe how often do they migrate? Maybe not annually, but maybe much less frequently. And so I'd like to, I'd like to see more about those star charts personally. I think that's got some more uh, story uh, perspective to it there. And then one last one, uh, Paulian uh, on YouTube comments about uh, our, la- our last episode, uh, that it was another good episode by this uh, SOME gang. Uh, since you kindly quoted my pre-show thoughts, I'm happy to say that uh, my hesitations about the show have been largely set aside after the first three episodes, as you said in this last episode, viewing it as based based on the works of Tolkien instead of a pure adaptation helps a lot. And my main issues with the first two episodes, too much going on with too many people and Aaron Deer's actor not showing any emotion, have both gone away with episode three. I love what we saw of Numenor. They absolutely nailed it. Can't wait for the next episode of the show and the next episode of the podcast, too. So. Thank you, Paul. We appreciate you listening and keeping up with us. And definitely if you have a comment or a question or would like for us to answer a question that you have about the show, uh, we'd be more than happy to attempt it. (laughs) But as we get into some of the things today, not everything has answers, even from uh, very deeply knowledgeable Tolkien lore masters, which I think amongst the group of us, we have we can probably claim that. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, let's uh, we can go ahead and dive in. I think, um, you know, we started talking about the opening scene because that, I think, is a really intense scene that sort of starts this episode. And this episode is called The Great Wave, and it opens with uh, the scene of Muriel blessing the babies of Numenor. So all of the women of Numenor have brought their babies. They are bringing them to get to be blessed by the queen. Uh, She's carrying them and blessing them. and then. The tree begins to drop petals and she turns around and sees water begin flooding into the island. And so, you know, Jeff, you mentioned that you you were like you were surprised to see it as if this is this was happening for real too early. And I was like, this has to be a dream. There's no way they're going to go this. There's no way they're going to change this much of the lore. That's a little much.
2: They really got me though with that. I I was like, wait, no. Th- no, really? <laughs> so soon? Like they they really got me. And then when it was a dream, I was like, oh, okay, right, right. I forgot about how they that's kind of a common technique in storytelling. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, I don't think it fooled me for very long, but it was it was for a couple of seconds. I was like, oh my gosh, this is this is happening. <laughs> right, yeah. So, I I was very but I mean, it's kind of, you know, foreshadowing for what's what's probably going to happen at the end of season four maybe i don't know
1: (laughs) yeah i think they had me all the way up to the point where it started actually uh pulling the terrace out from under her and then i was like this has to be a dream there's no way that because i was like maybe it's maybe it's just like you know rumblings of what's going to happen right and like there's there's some disaster that strikes and then uh, you know, they blame the elves and goes on, but, but then when it, when it finally like actually mm-hmm. destroyed the the actual terrace out from under her, I was like, okay, no, <laughs> this is this <laughs> has got to be a dream.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's what so. I thought. I thought like, oh, okay, so the island is starting to rumble mm-hmm. or something. You know, we're kind of having like pre-shocks, almost like you know, instead of like aftershocks. But then as soon as I saw the wave, I'm like, okay, dream sequence. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, and I I think it's interesting too because. Um, the there isn't a warning. And I think that's the really intense thing about this is that the, the destruction of Numenor is very sudden and it happens because there really is no other recourse to deal with them. And, and that's, you know, in the lore, that's sort of the way it goes is that uh, the, the Valar are just finally so fed up and can't do anything to, to actually fix the situation. And the, the just hubris that has come to be what Numenor is that they throw their hands up essentially and say, OK, Louvatar, it's yours. <laughs> Just t- t- take take care of this. And that's when that's when the destruction happens. And it's very quick and very complete. And I I I really I like that they're toying with that idea and kind of fooling us, even those of us who know what's going on into like being uh, comfortable with the fact that, well, maybe there were things that happened before. <laughs> it's like, nope, nope. <laughs> This, they didn't they saw this coming but they did not see this coming the way that that it does right. end up happening <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: i'm very intrigued by the the way that alivatar does step in and act in this moment with the destruction of numenor and i'm really excited to see how they present that um i'm assuming they will um but it'll be very interesting
3: and then it just to kind of contrast what. With- what Numenor does, we saw, we heard from Elrond what Erendil did, mm-hmm. which he essentially did the same thing, but his intention was for the good of others. He basically gave, thought he was just going to give up his life to request the aid of the Valar. And they ended up uh, honoring him and, uh, as we know, getting a flying ship, which is pretty cool. So he, uh, so it's kind of the opposite of what the Numenorians were doing, uh, when, who were trying to take. Uh, Whereas Arundel was trying to trying to give and trying to plead for aid. So,
1: yeah. And and I like that they're bringing all of these contrasts in in very clever storytelling methods, too. I thought that, you know, like. For anyone who doesn't know that Elrond is the son of uh, Arundel and what Arundel did, it's it's presented to you, but without just like a. Here is some more lore, but like this is actually something meaningful to him, and it fits the context of the situation of talking about living up to a father. That's like, oh, <laughs> I'm so frustrated with this guy. How do I even deal with him? And um, and it was very heartfelt that scene between the two between um Elrond and Durin. It was really just built really well and and felt right. And and like one of the commenters said, it, it felt very Tolkien. I'm surprised, um, and we might get
0: into this later too, of how many fathers and father figures we've seen just in this episode. Like I mm-hmm. counted, you know. Okay, we, we have Alendil, we mm-hmm. have Muriel's father, Tarpalantir, the king. We have Farazan, who it's revealed he has a son in this episode. We have Durin the Third. is mentioned, and then we have the villain Adar, which means father. He's like the father figure to the orcs so we have this whole motif of fatherhood running through the whole episode and i assume through the rest of the series as well that's going to be very interesting to see all those father figures or at least their storylines kind of converge as we get closer to the finale
3: yeah i think last week i mentioned that i had seen that theme and then of course this past weekend just to tie it back to our our faith it was uh prodigal son uh the the parable the prodigal son in in our sunday uh sunday reading so it's very yeah like but i noticed that too thomas there was the fatherhood is continuing and and we didn't see them this week but the harfoots you know sadoc's kind of the father of the tribe and nori's father so definitely lots of fathers going on and um so it'll be very interesting to see how that theme kind of plays out over the rest of the se- of this season in the series
2: we also see it kind of lacking in Theo's own life too whereas mm-hmm. there's such an right. emphasis on fatherhood for everyone else and he doesn't have his he's kind of on his own to try and figure everything out and then he also has Ronder coming in as like his wannabe stepfather that ah, he ah. doesn't really seem to like but maybe <laughs> he likes him a little bit more after this episode
1: yeah well but, and then you also have um you know Waldrig the the uh the innkeeper who is maybe trying to step into that role too. So in the absence of a father, we have these potentials for good or bad influences on this son who's left without. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, Halbrand too is, is a fatherless figure. And he's mentioned the fact that he essentially picked up this sigil off of a dead man. And that's the way he refers to his father. Whereas we have these other sons that are, you know, very have, have admiration for their father's, and he obviously doesn't. He he just considers it a, a waste, sort of. And I think we're going to see more of that character develop as we go along. And I'm interested to see where we, you know, kind of where we end up with him. And um, so, we, you know, in the, in the show, we see also um, we're introduced to Farazan and his son. And in a very interesting way that we have this kind of riling up of the crowd and <laughs> very yeah. political uh, sounding oddly uh, reminiscent of things that are happening in our actual news today with all of this kind of anti-immigrant sort of um, sense of things. And, you know, the, the elf has come in to take our jobs and they'll, you know, outlive us. And, the, the, you know, so all this kind of stuff is, is really intriguing. I, I the one thing I thought was really funny about the scene was that in the end, Farazhan steps in and does a really good job of kind of calming the crowd. You know, as you were saying, uh, Jeff, that he's, he's very likable like we see him step into this role and it's hard not to appreciate what he does where he just kind of splits that middle ground of not really disagreeing with what they're saying but at the same time not putting the problem on the queen and at more as let's refocus on the elves being the problem not the queen being the problem and then he buys them off the same way that Halbrin did where he's like round a round of drinks for everyone <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: i felt that whole thing was a setup because like the, mm. the guy who's doing the rabble rousing, I've seen him in previous episodes with Farazan, So I'm like, oh, did Farazon send this guy to kind of gin up these crowds with this rhetoric so that he can come in Farazan, the reasonable politician, and give this great speech and, you know, like get on the side of the people. So I was just thinking, I'm like this, this to me, it was showing Farazon's kind of deviousness. That I'm sure we'll we'll see play out later.
2: I was going to say the same thing. I think that he is orchestrating this and he's kind of digging into the unrest and attempting to use it for his advantage because he doesn't say trust in the queen. She's going to take care of us. He says, trust in me. Mm. And you can see that he's trying to kind of worm his way into the hearts of the people, even if he may not be the official ruler, he wants to be the ruler um, that's kind of calling the shots. And, and, And that was kind of like the way that his son was talking about him. You know, there's not someone he doesn't owe a favor to or someone who doesn't know his name or he doesn't know their name. Like he's definitely working his way up.
1: Like It's that statement, by these callous hands, right? <laughs> when he says, yeah. by these callous hands, I'll hold us, or there will not be an elf uh, to lead us.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, too, how you see that he's got all these guild crests. So yeah. uh, un- unless he kind of, you know, got them by buying them or whatever. But it doesn't seem like that's, at least from the little bit we saw of these smiths, that you you have to earn it. So it seems like he's he really is kind of a man of the people. He's earned these crests and whatever i i didn't look too closely at them i'm sure someone online has kind of analyzed them uh to to the no get out but it, you can see that he's a man of you know he has some some talents out and has kind of presumably used those to kind of curry favor with everybody with all these guilds that are you know kind of the backbone of you know probably like the the ruling class or the kind of the second class and of numenor so mm-hmm. they'll be i'm Curious to see kind of what if we learn more about him or get hit, you know, a, get a uh, a on uh, flashback episode or something like that, just mm-hmm. to kind of see his his origins and maybe he had an ancestor killed by an elf or something, and he's taken it to, <laughs> has held a grudge for however long. So
1: yeah, I and I have to say one thing too about this show: there are so many just beautiful gems of quotes that they are scattering throughout that are really good, and, and this one. When his son meets him and is ribbing him for, you know, doing statecraft while he's there doing, you know, kind of merchant transactions, he says he responds to him and says statecraft is the art of attending to small matters as diligently as grand ones. And that's just a a really good quote that encapsulates kind of what he's about, but is such a great concept of like of that, like, you know, you can do no great things, but only small things with great love it's kind of turning it on its head and doing it for an ambitious purpose when you talk about it in this sense, but it's the intention is the same, right? Is to do small things as if they were big things. And that makes all the difference. So we moved, we moved from there to uh, a scene where uh, Galadriel is presenting what she has discovered to the queen and they're still at odds. The two of them, they are still butting heads about this and the queen does not want to uh, offer help. And we still aren't sure why at this point. Um, The argument's kind of, kind of interesting and it does end up with Gladriel in jail. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I, and it's, uh, it's funny because when she turns around she's like, "Uh, there is a tempest in me. And I'm like, yeah, but But it's just you. (laughs) (laughs) You can't take on the entire kingdom of Numenor by yourself, Galadriel. Come on.
2: (laughs) I feel like they're really trying to connect her to Feanor. Even though she's Mm -hmm. not a descendant of Feanor, they are from the same group of elves. So I feel like they're trying to uh, maybe go very far with that comparison.
0: Yeah, she definitely has that Feanorian barely contained rage (laughs) mode uh, throughout like basically like I'm a bit frustrated almost because I'm like, I I feel like that's been her one character note through like the whole show is just barely contained rage most of the Mm -hmm. time. And I'm I'm hoping we'll kind of see some more, you know, nuance with this character going forward. She'll
3: tell us the secret that she's always angry (laughs) (laughs) and turn big and green.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I, I I think that I think we're going to see that. And I think I'm liking actually the way that they're pushing this because they're telling us this is a different Galadriel than the Galadriel we see in the actual Lord of the Rings movies. And something has to happen because there is so much rage about her towards Sauron. That she wouldn't have just settled down and been content that he was mm-hmm. dead after the last alliance, right? She she would have, I, I this, this kind of thing would have carried on unless something happens that truly alters her in the way that she sees the world and what she sees her role in the world as. So I'm intrigued to see where they're going to work that through this whole narrative.
2: She definitely seems like she's learning. Um, but I think it's very I, I just hope that Hallbrand is not supposed to be Sauron because she's learning from Hallbrand. Like, he, you know, he's kind of walking her through like this is how you should be approaching things. And he's trying to temper her and and trying to teach her how to be a little bit more um, tactful. And I think if if what everyone thinks, if if everyone thinks he's Sauron, if that turns out to be true, I just think that would be so weird um, for mm. her to have learned yeah. from him, and I, I really don't like that. So I'm still really hopeful that he's not supposed to be Sauron.
0: He says a very Sauron type line, though. He says he, he tells Galadriel, "Identify what it is your opponent most fears. Give them a means of mastering it, so that you can master them." And I'm like, isn't that Mm -hmm. basically Sauron's M.O.? Especially when he's in Numenor, he 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 tricks the Numenor. He's like, okay, you fear death more than anything else. Well, I'm going to give you a means to master it. Go and seize everlasting life from the Valar. And in that way, he masters them. So in that moment, I kind of. My eyes narrowed and I'm like, are you Sauron? Like, <laughs> I, st- <laughs> I started to suspect for a moment, but that, that could just be a red herring on the part of the writers. I don't know.
2: They definitely want us to think that he's Sauron. Mm. And that's the unsettling thing about it. He's extremely uh, suspicious, especially as he was advising Farazone later in the episode. Yeah. Like it was so in your face that it, makes me think hopefully it can't be true because it's, this is ridiculous.
3: Yeah. I'm just from a production standpoint, I don't think he's Sauron just because you're trying to introduce new people to the show uh, and get, you know, get as many eyes as you can. So if they're, if they are switching actors all of a sudden for the same, they're saying, okay, because well, maybe not switch actors, but it will you know, they're, I think if we see Sauron, he'll be more, we, at least from the text, he's, more elvish in appearance and he'll he'll be working um you know with uh kelle at some point probably so i think just from a production standpoint we're not going to see Halbrand is not sauron just because he's he's not it they would have to probably change actors and i think that might be you might lose some people there so i think just from the practical side he's not but anything is is absolutely possible he's definitely there's more to him than we've been than we've been told and i'm hopefully we get to kind of see more of his journey to where he is. Cause kind of in contrast to some of the characters from the legendarium, like Baron or some of these other men who were kind of in the wilderness for a while and were kind of found their way to the elves eventually. So um, it'll be interesting to see. He could be Sauron for all we know, but I I'm suspecting he's not, but he's definitely, he knows more than he's let on. He's there's more to him uh, that we haven't seen. So.
1: Yeah. And uh, I, I think, uh, I don't know. I still like the theory that he is the leader of the, uh, of the lost, uh, the lost band that uh, that Aragorn summons to the final battle. That's, yeah, yeah, that's my favorite. That to me, because because we're getting we're getting. I I feel like we're getting a huge redemption arc for him, only for him to fall short right at the end. And that mm-hmm. to me is like, oh, that would be such great storytelling. <laughs> yeah,
2: I'll yeah. be devastated, but it'll be like an incredible. It'll be devastating in a good way
1: yes right yeah right where you've really come to care about this character Mm -hmm. and then he just doesn't take the final step no yeah and it's
2: almost (laughs) worse than someone like directly choosing evil it's that they're so close to choosing good and then they just fall short like that's such a a great storytelling way to go about things and i also Mm -hmm. feel like you know it kind of happens a lot with tolkien characters so right um,
3: yeah
2: i could definitely see that
3: Sorry, I saw this earlier and and I pulled it up again. But there's someone on Reddit put a picture of Galadriel saying his people are scattered, leaderless, next to a picture of Gandalf saying they're scattered, divided, leaderless. There is that. one mm. who could unite them. Uh, so I was like, oh, a very, uh, yeah. So we'll see. All right. Yeah, I think he. I think I like the theory that he's the he's the uh, not king under the mountain, but the king of uh, of the dead men. The Dunhill, yeah. I think, is mm-hmm. yeah,
1: the, yeah. Yeah, and we haven't gotten a name for the people. Uh, that, you know, it's they're they have just they're referred to variously as these people of this land, right? So it's not, it's the, the so so yeah, it's the Southlander. So it's like kind of just this generic, and everything else has a name. So it's it's interesting that they haven't gotten a name. We haven't gotten a name for them yet. So we'll mm-hmm. see how we'll see how that comes through. Yeah. We'll how do you guys? Of,
2: oh, oh, I was gonna say, how do you guys feel about the way that they keep? including so many nods to the Peter Jackson movies in their dialogue. I, it almost feels like the show is more based on the movies than it is the books, because it's just like line after line after line that you're like, Oh, this sounds vaguely familiar. Oh, that's because it's almost taken directly from the movies. And I feel like at this point to me, it it almost feels like it's getting a little bit old. (laughs) But I don't know how everyone else feels.
0: I'm okay with it. But like I like I I know that they're probably thinking, well, more people have seen those movies than have read the book. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I was just talking to two people at my parish this weekend who were like, yeah, we've been watching the show. We haven't read the books, though. And I'm like, oh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so so like (laughs) I I I think I I think they know that that's a thing. So they want Mm -hmm. to incorporate elements that will be familiar for people who have at least seen the first couple of Peter Jackson movies.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I haven't watched the movies as much. Uh, Like I've I've seen the movies maybe two or three times and it's not that I don't like them. It's just that they're incredibly long and I would rather just sit down and read the book. Honestly, I was going (laughs) to go for one of the two. Um, so that's not, it's not catching me out quite that much. Um, where I'm recognizing the lines coming from them, I do like the feel of the way that they have everyone speaking. And especially uh, later on, there's the, there's the moment where they've just gotten done talking about the really deep stuff with Durin and they need a a lighter beat to, to catch us out. And so they, they do a gag with the, the trolls thing. And I really loved that scene because it caught me off guard in the sense that it was funny But it was funny in Lord of the Rings way, not in a slapstick or Marvel kind of way where it it takes us out of the lore to give us this humorous moment. But it really did catch it it kept telling the story, advancing the lore, but then also gave us this beat of like, okay, we just got this really serious stuff. We got some more really serious stuff coming up. Let's give a laugh in here in the in the middle.
0: I think it's because they just let the characters be themselves. They didn't try Mm to try to have the characters like. You know, the, the the joke seemed organic, I think, is what mm-hmm. I'm getting at.
1: Yeah. yeah, And I like that they're I like that they're doing that. I like they're going that they're going that direction and stuff. I thought, um, you know, we talked a lot about fathers and I thought the really interesting take here on Isildur that his friends, when they get kicked off of the ship, they are talking, you know, they, they're getting upset with him about it. And one of the things they bring up is the fact that he was always mewling about his mother. About you know that his mother was gone, and that that's what starts the fight, the real actual fist fight between them. And so this is the first real mention we've had of a mother figure in uh, in the series. I think unless anybody else has caught another one, I think Bronwyn you know Bronwyn excluded right, obviously right. But, so I thought that was interesting, and that seems to be you know it seems to be something that's driving Isildur to be who he is which is really interesting because that's a character that we know a lot about, but we don't know anything about.
2: <laughs> well, speaking yeah. of his mother, I think now that we've heard this feminine voice calling to him twice, I almost wonder if that's meant to be his mother's voice.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. The same thought. <laughs> See, I, this is probably an outside, you know, probably not true, but I kind of almost thought, is it Luthien's voice? Cause Luthien is his, um, uh one of his ancestors so oh yeah. i almost wondered if maybe it's cuz uh she i could be wrong but at least she was it, whether real or imagined you know some sort of in the halls of mandos uh voice or something i i had that thought too that it man you know, maybe it's Luthien or some you know voice from one of his ancestors so
2: that would be interesting
3: and
1: it's calling him to the west so i don't know that's huh I'm intrigued. I'd like to know more about his brother, too, and what's going on with his brother and why mm-hmm. and why his brother has been calling him
0: away. Yeah, they, they've mentioned mm-hmm. him a few times now, but we really don't know anything more about him.
2: I wonder if we'll see him in season two.
0: Yeah, because I don't think they've made any casting announcements about him, at least for this season.
2: No, I don't think so. And I imagine that they'll want to hype things up again for season two. So they will we'll probably do a similar character poster reveal like they did for season 1 and we'll probably get like 20 new people. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now that you're ready with all of these other guys and you can yeah. actually pronounce their name. That's right, why my wife like, keeps saying we need like a Facebook of all of these people, you
2: know. <laughs> yeah, cuz we just have their hands and their posters.
3: Yeah. Yeah, cuz I think then they say that he was uh, that Anarion had had gone west back to the you know those crazy westerners and their their mm. elvish ways. So it almost seems Mm -hmm. like he's there's, you know, some kind of underground Elvish, um, you know, Elf friend type of movement um, going on that Anarion is that maybe Elendil was kind of a part of in his youth, but kind of became just kind of your, you know, your what's expected of a Numenorean noble, be a captain of a ship. Um, And whereas Anarion was kind of more stuck to those ways. So, um, but yeah, I'm very curious to see, to see, learn more about them and. See if maybe Anarion joins the the ship, uh, whether we see him this season or or next or whenever.
1: That'd be good. So then we get this um we get the scene where we finally see Adar, the the father figure of the orcs, and it's Erendir, is it's chained down, and there and Ar- and Adar comes out and has this very interesting. Uh, almost mercy or compassion killing of this uh fatally wounded orc. And rather than being violent about it, he seems to be genuinely upset that he's having to, to put this orc down. And I was intrigued at that because it's, it shows a very different character for even an elf who, even an elf who has fallen and is living amongst the orcs. I wouldn't expect them to be compassionate towards the orcs themselves so how did you guys feel about uh, this whole scene
0: i thought he was gonna heal him at first the way he was putting his hands on him i'm like oh is he gonna use magic to heal this guy i'm like oh wait no he killed him
2: (laughs) (laughs) he just seemed very like tender and compassionate towards them and it makes sense why they seem to be so devoted to him because he really does seem to actually like I don't know if you could say love because this is such a kind of messed up society that they've created, but he he cares for them in a fatherly way. So when you see him taking care of the orc and kind of doing what needs to be done, because he can see that he's he is fatally wounded. He doesn't want him to suffer anymore. So he does what kind of what needs to be done in that situation. But you can see how he's so pained to do it. And then afterwards they have kind of like this ritual, um, I'm assuming they're gonna go bury him or do whatever orcs do with their bodies um but it was it was really surprising and i thought it was really cool to see this aspect of like orc culture and ritual
3: yeah i was gonna say uh, i'll with thomas i thought he was it was going to be some kind of healing that he was going to heal him and bring him back so i guess my initial read of the scene was that he he was the the orc thought he was going to be healed and then uh Adar just killed him, so I almost took it the opposite way that it wasn't a mercy that it was maybe uh, the orc thought he was going to be healed and Adar's you know did the opposite. But I, I think it's probably your the the more of the mercy is makes more sense now that you're saying that. But I initially thought that so I'm uh, and seeing Adar, I think one of y'all said that he was potentially a th- one of the thralls of Morgoth uh, from millennia ago because he definitely is looks like an elf. But definitely not, you know, he's kind of corrupted and um, pale skin and scarred and looking like he's aging. So, um, yeah, I'm curious to see if, you know, it seems like he's not a Maiar or anything like that. But um, he potentially could be And just just taking on the appearance of an elf, like a certain uh, character we've we've been talking about. So,
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah, (laughs) yeah. Well, and that's I and he says some interesting things so again we get this is this sauron is it, <laughs> where it's you know he he says he I'm not a god yet right and then he also right. mentions about the needing to recreate the world to undo some of the lies that um that Aaron Deer has been told uh that the rocks even the rocks believe it at this point and we'd have to recreate the world to untangle it uh so yeah it's it's interesting where they're going with this character and I'm, I'm still holding out. I don't think we've seen him yet. I don't think we've seen Sauron yet. <laughs> I know. Yeah. You're still waiting so. for that character.
0: Yeah. I've heard an interesting theory that he's um, the, uh, the first age elf Maglor, one of Feanor's sons, because hmm. I think he's the only son of Feanor who we don't have a definitive, like either death or that he goes to Valinor ending for him. And if I remember correctly, Maglor, one of his hands is burned by one of the Silmarils and Adar, Mm -hmm. one of his hands has a gloved gauntlet, but only Mm -hmm. one hand. And so when I heard this theory, I'm like, huh, maybe he is Maglor, but that would be that would be kind of a deep cut for them to do. I mean, yeah, yeah, but they've done such a good job of explaining the lore to new viewers so far that I wouldn't be too surprised if they went that route.
3: And I saw something too for him is his neck armor, like the chest plate that he had on was a similar motif to Gilgalad's. And he was talking about the river. So definitely seeming like he's, and I was, you know, quick earlier today, I was like, okay, trying to like, who, who could he be? Is he did, you know, Gilgalad have a, have another brother or a, you know, a cousin or (laughs) something like that. But (laughs) um, so it seems like he's definitely, um, is from from that people from the uh, from the Noldor. So. Uh.
1: So I, I thought it was interesting because they talk about Beleriand very specifically here. So I was wondering if he might be the um, I'm, I'm lost on his name right now, the elf that betrays uh, Beleriand to uh, to Morgoth. Uh, oh, so my
2: Yeah. Mm. That one I'm less likely to buy because he's supposed to have fallen to his death. Yeah, and his death was his death was like something that was prophesied by his father. Um, when his father is dying, he's like, "And you will die the same death as me." And then the same kind of casting from the walls happens. So uh, i I am more likely. I, I'm actually kind of into the Maglore theory because, um, because of the way he was talking. Adar was talking about how he walked along the river for a really long time or whatever he said. And with, with Maglor, he casts the Silmaril into the sea and, and, you know, after it burns him unbearably, and then he kind of just wanders along the shores lamenting. So Mm -hmm. kind of this similar walking along shores thing is going on. So maybe it could be him, but I'm also kind of thinking it's probably just someone they invented for the show
1: could be i mean they, they, I, as far as i'm concerned they have earned the right to do that because they've already done a really good job with halbrent and getting us to ask good questions about him so right. yeah mm-hmm. I, I really i trust where they're moving with things at this point and I, I while i wouldn't mind to see more of the legendarium brought in for sure i don't mind them expanding it out at this point either i think they're doing a really good job with it and as an example of that uh the chant that the orcs Uh, perform here at the death rites of this other orc we don't know what it means Uh, and so there i mean you get the general sense that it's like grieving for him but there's no translation so if you go and look it up on any of the elf dictionaries that are out there uh there's not really a direct anything and so uh thomas i know you had you had read somewhere that one of the actors had this sort of uh statement about the phrase that they're using
0: yeah, yeah, I remember uh watching a video where um oh and I'm blanking on the actor's name. Uh I th- um but he's 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 played a lot of orcs both in the Peter Jackson movies and he he plays an orc in this. I think and it was Jed Brophy, right? Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it was Jed Brophy. Yeah. He said that it basically has the sense of rest in peace, but that that's not a literal translation.
1: Yeah. And I have I I have not verified this all the way through, but I read something on Reddit where they They were looking at some of the other times that black speech has been used. And Nam is apparently the name of Mandos for black speech. And so if you take that sort of out of out, if you take that context, what they might be saying is something about going to the halls of Mandos. And then if you mush some of the other stuff you might get the word fear in black speech in there and what they were uh, postulating is that it's perhaps bring the fear bring fear to mandos and and that's what they're saying in the black speech which fits very in a very interesting way Um, oh yeah so I I'd love to I'd love to believe it. I'd have not looked at it all the way through, but it seems like a pretty convincing argument to me.
0: Yeah, or, um, orc traditions about the afterlife would be an an mm-hmm. interesting an interesting yeah. road to explore. Yeah.
2: That would be really cool if they gave us any any kind of uh, information about that.
1: I I hope they do because they they seem to be aware enough of the import of all the things that they're pulling in. So I'm, I'm intrigued to see them continue uh, with this mm-hmm. kind of thing. So we get a little uh, we, we don't have anything about the um, the Harfoots this week. And instead, we go back to getting some stuff about the men, the, the Bronwyn and Theo. And we see that Theo is willing to go back into the town to make a essentially a, a food run. For yeah. getting some stuff for the people in the um in the tower and Bronwyn's not super thrilled about it, but we in the scene, we have finally the confirmation that the orcs have indeed been searching for the hilt and that once once one of the orcs sees it. Now we know this is the thing that they have been looking for with all of their digging.
2: This kind of does it. I I don't know. I think we talked about this before, but it does kind of give me a Harry Potter kind of vibe. Like this is some kind of a horcrux that Uh they need in order to bring you know to summon Sauron or something like that. So I'm kind of intrigued about what like, why is this so important? Kind of what's what's the deal here?
3: So I was curious about this. So this could be me just projecting onto it. But Theo could understand the orcs in the village. And I almost wondered if maybe we're meant to believe that works are speaking the black speech, but the hilt is translating for mm. him huh. kind of like the one ring mm. translated, um, you know, spider speech. And I believe it translated, you know, when the when the uh, ring race were attacking the, the fellowship, they understood uh, or Frodo could understand them through the ring when he was wearing it. So I'm almost wondering if this is kind of the same thing leading me to think and if it is. Leading me to kind of think maybe the hilt is something Sauron crafted, and if it has that similar property, um, just it's kind of a, a a you know something I always notice is when people of a certain culture and in, in any kind of film are speaking you know English or the common tongue or whatever it is. I'm like, shouldn't they be speaking their own language? Um, so I almost uh, wonder if that might be the case here. If he was, if we're meant to, because you do see them speaking you know common tongue to a rondir and others, but among themselves they shouldn't they most likely would be speaking their own language. So maybe it's just my headcanon for right now, but I'm curious to see if that, you know, the hilt is kind of a you know, a pre um, you know, an an early attempt by Sauron at crafting and smithing um that he'll, you know, more we'll see more later on, of course, when he's forging the ring, but
2: And and the sword hilt does have the mark that Sauron um uh, made on it so it's definitely something of his
1: yeah and and we do have precedent for that for that translation issue because just previous to this we saw uh erendir who does not have who doesn't know the black speech we can assume uh or at least not enough of it in in the presence of the orcs he doesn't know what's happening when uh when the orcs are speaking hear only the orcish speech but then we do hear the the quinya when um adar turns around to speak to him only briefly and then it comes back into um to to common speech and i think that's kind of the indication that that adar has gone from speaking to the orcs to speaking to him and we know that he's now speaking elf so i think they're trying to signal that to us in this scene
2: Yeah, that's really interesting
3: yeah and then with the hilt too it was because it was the the old the old man he was the it was his hilt he had it in his barn and theo found it am i was that right
0: Mm -hmm. yeah so i'm wondering
3: if and now we're seeing an even bigger connection he's he's potentially you know a a follower of of sauron or you know his ancestors Mm -hmm. were followers of morgoth so um very interesting to see if uh you know what where this leads us and you know how how (laughs) it seems like it's not not going to be good for theo but um Hopefully uh, almost like a, hopefully like a cult of Sauron going yeah on. yeah <laughs> yeah like, mm-hmm. which you know the cult of Morgoth is what happens on Numenor so
0: mm. right. um did did anybody catch that guy's name by the way? It went too no, fast the on guy? The, Yeah, Wal, Waldridge. Oh, okay. Because it, it's funny. I I kept calling him in my head Billy Bones because he <laughs> he reminds me of the pirate from from Treasure Island because he kind of talks like a pirate and he looks <laughs> like a pirate. So I'm like, "Okay, you're Billy Bones until I
1: learn what your actual name is." And then he throws throws rum at the kid. <laughs> yeah.
3: That's right, yeah. He's interested in treasure.
2: Well, and he's like, he's like the butcher and the innkeeper, but he's also kind of like the the town crazy old man. But yet, he still is like the source of he's. I kind of acts like he's the mayor of the town too. And I thought, like, mm-hmm. what is this guy? He was. <laughs> yeah. It's just a really bizarre character that it's also very entertaining to see. Like, he's just kind of everything, I
1: guess. Yeah, when the actor's doing a really good job with him.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And then going back to the early, the first, I can't remember if it was the first or the second, but we, when Bronwyn props the head up, you know, throws the head (laughs) at him. So he must have, if he's some kind of, you know, cult of Morgoth, cult of Sauron, whatever, um, you know, what, what would he have thought when he saw the head of the orc? He's like, oh, this is Mm -hmm. a sign that it's time to, you know, to enact the master plan of bringing, bring our, our God back, our, you know, Sauron, or Mm -hmm. maybe he thinks Morgoth more than Sauron, but yeah be interesting to see
2: he also mentioned something about a beautiful servant too and that's supposed to be sauron
1: Mm -hmm. so we get this um we go back to the uh the building of the tower and we get some more of the story of the dwarves which I i love this whole scene this this whole segment leading up to the interaction where we find out the 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 thing that was that in the that was in the box was actually Mithril, uh, mm-hmm. and and the naming of it that was so cool that uh, Elrond was there and he named Mithril basically, which is mm-hmm. very neat. Uh, and we hear that Durin the Elder is mm-hmm. not interested in mining it because it is in an old mine below the Miramar. so it's a dangerous mining, uh, da- dangerous potential area to be mining and then we do actually see that, that that that's the case as it falls out um but I I love it and then the one thing that I caught the second watch through that I thought was really clever and very great uh the the secret knock that gets him into the door is the kids song yeah it's the song that, that mm-hmm. the children were singing I you didn't catch say it the, the, the first time this thing so <laughs> like. <laughs>
2: Which makes sense when you go back and watch it again and Disa and, uh, is like yelling at the kids, like, shut up, stop yeah, it. You right. know, like, like OK, that's why they, they shouldn't be you shouldn't teach your kids your secret passwords. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep. And it still holds true today. You know, just don't yep. let your kids know the passwords <laughs> to your computers, to your wife. <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh my or like they're they're,
0: they're, they're always, totally always
1: listening, you know.
0: Like, be careful uh-huh.
1: what you say around them; they'll repeat yep. it. Yeah. So that I thought that was very clever. That whole scene was very well done, and then we see that that the friendship between Durin, the greed of the dwarves, is not so great that it will ruin the friendship that uh, Durin has with Elrond. Durin the Fourth has with Elrond, and so that's I, I thought the, it was nice to have this scene wrap up the way it did and not make them even more at odds with each other. And especially mm-hmm. when it comes back to Disa and her feeling like um, you know Durin would have been in that cave if it, if Elrond hadn't have gone to to talk with him. So that was really yeah. Uh,
3: and and so this one made me think of I wonder if there's kind of some shifting timelines that we're maybe not aware of because it seems like the Numenor stuff is happening in real time, but this episode we when we see the tower in um, uh, is it Linden is the where they're building the. Mm-hmm. The Aradion, I think. Array, okay. Yeah. Yeah, We see like that pretty well, pretty well far along. And then Elrond says something like, you know, I, I didn't want to wait 20 years before coming back. So I'm almost wondering if this is kind of a, if not saying that there's going to be like these is taking place in an entirely different age, but maybe this timeline is kind of accelerated a little bit on, or the, you know, the Duran Elrond part is kind of happening a little, you know, more time is passing there and then it'll eventually catch up. Maybe when, Numenor is traveling to the to middle earth because you know, we, uh, I don't know that we know how long that journey is yet, but you know, maybe there's just some shifting timelines going on there. That's so, uh, I don't know if that means anything, but just something I noticed on this. Uh,
2: I did think that was a little bit confusing and a little bit odd that they have made so much progress on the tower. And yet uh, Galadriel really hasn't been in Numenor that long like, really, the longest that this could have been is a couple of weeks, like maybe like three mm-hmm. weeks, um, at least since the meteor landed, um, because Waldrug says something like, you know, did you see it in the skies a couple of weeks ago? Um, so mm-hmm. it really can't have been that long unless they're unless they had started the tower beforehand, and maybe they there were maybe there was some scenes that they did put in the show that ended up getting cut because it does feel kind of confusing. Like they maybe forgot to mention a couple of things.
1: Right. By the way, we got started on this thing and it's right, going like, <laughs> yeah, they forgot
2: to throw that into, you know, the beginning of episode three or something.
1: Yeah. Well, and they're, they're tying a lot of storylines through. And so. You know, like, like this episode, we had nothing about the Harfoots, which is a whole storyline that we went an episode without. And, you know, we'll have to Iron have me. it back next, which means something's going to be gone. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I want to find out who Meteor Man is, darn it.
2: Yeah, that's about it.
3: <laughs> well, if we if we saw the teaser, I don't know if we want to get there yet, but the teaser does indicate that we're seeing some Harfoots And I think I said it last week, there's Chekhov's warg is appears to be uh he looming so <laughs> ah, oh there you go <laughs>
2: yeah it makes sense because we didn't see any dwarves in episode three so we had a lot
1: of dwarves in four and i'm
2: sure we'll go back to the our foots next week
1: and it's possible we'll be missing out on numenor's story next week i'm not sure like i, I yeah, could see I us missing that one and then do going the rest of the things because i, I want
3: to see yeah. the marshalling of numenor to middle earth that just sounds pretty uh yeah pretty epic that would and, be pretty you neat know, yeah um uh, I mean, stalking the ships and seeing the fleet you know sail
1: so we we also get this sense here that we we know now that the um oh well I, i'm jumping ahead of myself here uh we get this scene with galadriel and Halbrand uh where they talk about she, he kind of flips the the warlike stance that she took where you know the, he, the armor that he wasn't wearing was weighing heavily on him and kind of flips it on his head where it's like you're you're too concerned with war you need to actually like chill out and figure out you know how to talk to people without fighting trolls all the time <laughs> and uh, and then uh galadriel takes a, a more calm tone with muriel and muriel reveals to her the palantir and she gets to see the vision which i love the cut on that scene it was amazing the special effect that they do where the, the block or the palantir kind of breaks and then shatters and then reality shatters her into the dream Mm-hmm. Um, and but in the room the Palantir is uh, we've got to talk about the nerd room because yeah. uh, <laughs> it, we, we were, I, was, I was geeking out about maybe Narsil has been revealed I, Narsil has definitely been revealed now when they first walk into this room with the Palantir Galadriel stops right beside a sword that is clearly Narsil uh, at least the hilt of it is showing very clearly right there and it looks just like the one from the movies but there were some other things in this room so what, what did you notice Thomas? Um, I saw what
0: has to be uh Dramborleg, the, the axe of Tuor, who was a man who uh who uh lived in Gondolin in the first age. I think we also see his shield, and mm-hmm. then in the shadows there's something that might be the dragon helm of Dorloman, which the, the man Turin, son of Turimbar, um, had also in the first age. So a lot of first age like you know, uh Huge orc killing weapons, like all in this room.
2: <laughs> this is just the room of things that they put in the show just for us.
0: Yes. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's exactly what it is. <laughs> and, and we get this really good discussion between the two of them. And again, more very Tolkien esque lines that I loved, where uh, Gladrill confronts Muriel's trying to get her on board with the combat to go and help Halbrand and his people. And she says to her, Choose not the path of fear but of faith. And the and that, that's such a, a good powerful line, very Tolkien thing to say. And then Muriel comes back with an excellent counter which is faith may bind one heart, but it's too fine a thread on which to hang a kingdom. And I love that interchange between the two of them.
3: Mhm.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, did anyone else catch how how much this scene was reminiscent in both how it was set up and in dialogue? to Galadriel showing Frodo her mirror. Mm-hmm. The, the, there's even a line of dialogue that's almost exactly the same. I think Galadriel says like a Palantir shows you many things, not all of which come to pass, which is taken mm-hmm. straight from the Lothlorien scene from, I think both the books and the Peter Jackson movies, but
2: I, I hadn't thought about that. That's really good. Yeah. That's I good that,
0: Yeah. That, that I'm like, that was very clever sort of,
1: foreshadowing to like her own future Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so the other thing that i thought was interesting here and this is something that i think we're going to get more of is you'll notice at the end of last episode this is the room to which muriel goes and said and she's speaking with someone and says the elf has come or the, the time has come and the elf is here it's not her father's room because They they go from her father's room to this room and that same walking up the stairs and placing the lantern on the hook uh, occurs that occurred at the end of last episode. So I'm intrigued to see if maybe she was using the Palantir to communicate with someone.
2: Hmm. Then I guess she would have been lying when she said that the other six are missing. Mm -hmm. If she was because then she would know at least where one of them is
1: right so i'm hmm. i'm i i am very suspicious of uh of muriel at this point <laughs> <Interesting>. <laughs> that, that threw me because i was i was i was i was in you know when when galadriel breaks into the king's room i was like okay she so must be at the top of those stairs but then they walk to the top of the stairs and hang the lantern hmm. i'm like oh this is did anyone also notice
2: how she just like somehow scaled that <laughs> tower and then breaks through the glass in, of in the a window dress. <laughs> in a dress. That part I was like, wait, wait a second. What?
3: Well, we saw her climb in the first episode, so I guess it's a little bit easier than scaling a, a mountain icy I mountain guess. wall.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's true. Does she have her dagger? I can
1: I can only imagine how good dwarves must be must be at this. if yeah. if elves are that good. <laughs> and then the dwarves <laughs> can do it just that much better
2: that part yeah i was just like man okay glad show. Yeah. let's just break everything in numenor like
1: okay so last couple of things that i think uh i think we touched on most of the rest of the episode but then there's um we get a name for the tower where all the humans are and it's Ostirith is what it was so uh this is a, a location that i'm not particularly sure where it where it is to fit into everything but maybe it's something that doesn't exist in the third H for us to have a reference back to.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know a few Elvish words. I think that might mean something like Citadel tower. Mm-hmm. Cause, Cause I think oss means fortress and Tirith definitely right. means tower. So it might mean like fortress tower or something.
2: Did you also notice when Bronwyn was talking about um, how many villagers had come to the tower? She said, um, there's people coming all the way from Aura Druin, which
3: mm-hmm.
2: we like, I've always heard it or Druin. Yeah. So hearing it emphasized in a different way, I was like, wait a second, what did she just say? Um, that was a really exciting, I think I like yelled out loud and everyone started laughing at me because <laughs> I was like, guys, what? <laughs> so, I mean, we already location. knew, right. We already kind of knew where we were, but when she said that, I was just like, that was a big moment. I was like, no way.
0: Yeah, I didn't catch it at first. Uh I, I think one of the, the recurring problems in this show is that one of the things that they've picked up from the Peter Jackson films that they really shouldn't have is that a lot of characters mumble or slur their lines and it makes it <laughs> difficult for them to understand.
2: This is Captions the kind of show on. that you have to have the subtitles on. Yeah. I, yep. Like I don't think I can understand half of the harfoots without the subtitles. <laughs> 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 mm,
1: uh... Yeah, I, I, I I'm going to start turning it on for my first watch through with my family and then maybe turn it off. I don't know, because I, I take my notes on my second watch. So I don't know. Maybe I'll just keep the captions on for the whole time.
2: <laughs> yeah, I just always have them on. <laughs>
1: my my problem is that I tend to read the captions instead of watching the show. <laughs> so I've got to be careful. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, so my, my last thing that I noticed in this one was um the white tree when they put Galadriel out on the boat and she's going out into the bay. Uh, the white tree begins dropping its petals and that's what sort of triggers the switch that Muriel brings her back in and says, we're going to go to to Middle-earth with her. And I'm wondering about this because we know what happens, which is essentially that they go to Middle-earth, they establish some forward bases and while there, Farazon discovers that Sauron is calling himself the lord of the earth becomes jealous of that name and then that's where Numenor like really just plummets off the edge right so I'm intrigued here because this decision reading the petals of the tree this decision is one of those like uh, a man often meets his fate on the road he tries to take to avoid it (laughs) kind of things so she's getting this notification from the tree that sending Galadriel off is causing the death of Numenor and then she brings her back and actually goes to that end, you know, to try and avoid the end of Numenor takes them to the precipice. So I mean I'm interested in what exactly is happening here lore wise and where they're gonna where they're gonna go back to explain that.
2: I'm also kind of wondering what Farrozone is up to because he seems very supportive of Muriel. Mm-hmm. And so I almost wonder if while she's gone he's going to use it as an opportunity to kind of informally assume control. And then maybe I'm guessing her father will probably die while she's gone. And then he'll kind of just like take over while she's gone, because I, I kind of feel like they might be trying to avoid the the story that we know from the books where he forces her to marry him to assume control. So I wonder if they're kind of taking it in a slightly different direction. Um, because he doesn't seem to mind that she's suddenly on the side of the elves, um,
0: mm-hmm.
2: which kind of seems to contradict the way he's been acting before. So maybe he's going to use it as some kind of opportunity.
0: Yeah, I also wonder if this is kind of just the beginning of like Numenor's slide into tyranny, because like I know in um In some of the source material, it kind of shows how like Numenor developed sort of colonial dependencies, kind of colonial states in Middle Earth. So I'm wondering, you know, they're coming in to ostensibly help these Southlanders, but maybe they just don't leave. You know, maybe they just say, Mm -hmm. hey, you know, we can occupy this land permanently and kind of exploit these people. And that will kind of be sort of the beginning of Numenor, maybe falling from nobility into a kind of tyrannical colonial regime.
2: Yeah, that would be really cool to see for sure.
3: And maybe Farzan kills the king.
2: Oh. oh
3: well, uh, you know, that. if, because if, Mar- if Mariel's kind of the one who's kind of protecting him, because presumably Farzan, a lot of the, he sounds like he has a lot of the, you know, the people on his side. Um, there might be, a, you know, I'm sure there's some loyal guards to royal family but if they if you know a lot of them go with Mariel to Middle Earth then maybe it's on takes this opportunity and the king is old anyway so you know no one's going to suspect um, you know if an old man passes away in his sleep um,
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know so I don't know I it's kind of I'm kind of wondering right now if if on is they're not he's not uh, maybe he does have in his own mind has good intentions and is not actually trying mm-hmm. to be an evil, you know, the guy we know him that he'll become. So we could kind of see him starting off. He could be a very, you know, positive character for Numenor, but he ends up through influence of a certain, uh, you know, captive, they bring back to then kind of backslide into, um you know, being evil. But, or then again, like I said, he could, if he kills the king, then we know he's probably not the, not a good guy. So,
2: mm-hmm. Well, he just seems like the kind of guy who will do anything for Numenor, and for what he thinks is is right. Um, and what he thinks is right may not necessarily actually be what's truly right. But he does seem to really think that whatever he's doing is the right choice, and he's willing to to get it done at any cost. It seems, and um, I'm sure we'll see that as we go on.
3: Yeah, that's definitely a Tolkien, you know, theme of being prideful and, you know, um, uh, you know, being, a, cause the whole fan thing, fan is prideful, Morgoth or Melkor was prideful and led to their falls and the falls of many. So definitely, a you know, be, would be on brand for Tolkien if, uh, for far on to kind of start off b- being very prideful and then not being, you know, not pulling it, pulling back when he should, um, you know, taking a step too far. And and like I said, being under the influence of some of a certain, uh, captive they eventually get. So, mm-hmm. and,
1: and even just to getting to that point where he is weak and succumbing the way that the King is, and that becomes more and more, uh, you know, sorry, it's that, it's that moment of worm tongue whispering in, um, in the ear of the King, it's the same way you, you would have this sort of, uh, Anatar whispering in the ear of Farazon as he becomes weaker and weaker, and mm-hmm. then he wants to pursue immortality. I I think the show has a, a lot of breathing room and they've done a good job of establishing the early parts of it. They they can pace it too. That's the that's the really neat thing. I think they've done a good job of setting up a lot of the different storylines. Now they can ride on just slowly building all of the things that they've set up in these first few episodes. So mm-hmm. I like it. I think it's taking a good turn. <laughs> yeah, I'm it.
2: definitely I'm enjoying this this ride of the show. It's it was disorienting at first to to figure out where we we were, where we were um, and to kind of adjust my mindset to this is not exactly Tolkien, um, but mm-hmm. it's very it's very fun and it's kind of a exciting ride.
0: All right. Any closing thoughts? Just that I'm excited. Yeah, like uh, like what uh, Caitlin said, I'm just excited to see where it goes. Like, you know, I've I'm I'm sort of letting them take the driver's seat and, you know, I'm I'm along for the ride until it's over. I'm like I said, I think at the top of the show, I'm I'm just fascinated by the sense that we kind of know where it's going, but we don't know the
1: details. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm I'm just really excited to see it all unfold. So that is it from us. We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create The Secrets of Middle-earth, including Gary J, Christopher P, Thomas V, Jody F, and Brian S. Their generous donations at sqpn.com/give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Middle-earth and all the shows here at StarQuest. You can join them at sqpn.com/give. We'd love to hear what you think of this episode of the Rings of Power. You can let us know at sqpn.com slash Middle Earth on our Facebook page or Twitter or send an email to Middle Earth at sqpn.com. You can also visit our channel on StarQuest Discord server at StarQuest.com slash Discord. There's a lot of great discussion going on on there. A lot of meme sharing also about some of the things that are happening on the show. Uh, So if you are interested in having a more in-depth discussion that kind of progresses uh, as we're going through, uh, definitely join us there. Uh, We'll be back next time when we are discussing Episode 5 of The Rings of Power. Until then, uh, Jeff Hecker, thank you for joining me on Sharing the Secrets of Middle-Earth. Thank you, Thomas. And Caitlin Fischista, thank you for joining me.
2: Thank you. This is great.
1: And Thomas Salerno, thank you as well. Thanks so much. Once again, I'm Thomas Sanjuro. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Middle-Earth on StarQuest.
3: Here's another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy. The Secrets of Technology. Find it wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com
0: technology.